Hello, I'm Timothy Paul Jones, and I teach and write about apologetics. And I'm Garrick Bailey, and I am a professional student. Welcome to the first episode of Three Chords and the Truth. Three Chords and the Truth is a new podcast that brings together apologetics, theology, and the history of rock and roll. In the Three Chords segment of this week's program, Garrick and I will talk about why apologetics matters to us. And then in the Truth segment, we'll learn about the doctrine of common grace as we consider the classic song by Kiss, God Gave Rock and Roll to You. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. Each week, my co-host, Garrick Bailey, and I will tackle an issue related to one of three topics, the reliability of the Gospels, racial reconciliation, or the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we go looking for God's truth by reviewing a classic rock song. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords and the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. I'm Garrick Bailey, and I want to welcome you to this inaugural episode of Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. We're so glad you've chosen to join us on this journey. Timothy, I have a question for you. If you were forced this Halloween to dress up as one member from KISS, the band, who would it be? Well, I will have to say, first off, it would be forced if I were if that were to happen. Kiss is one of those bands that has always struck me as being all style and no substance whatsoever. But for some reason, even when I was a kid, the cat one looked appealing at that point. And the first time I ever saw Kiss was at a presentation in a fundamentalist church in which they were presenting to us all of the horrible things that would happen if you ever listened to rock and roll, one of which was at one of these conferences. If you put an egg in front of speakers playing rock and roll, it would hard boil the egg, we were told. And I believed that for years. We may talk in a future episode about the whole story of the hard boiled egg and what I did in response to that in a, in a later time in my life. So let's talk first about kind of who we are, how this podcast began. I go to school at full-time and work at uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I We moved here, uh, my wife of 17 years and our two children. We moved here in 2014 to pursue my PhD in systematic theology and church history. Shortly after arriving here, began working in a part-time capacity on campus for ish years ago and now serve as the director of distance education here at the seminary. So I've been at uh, Southern Seminary for 11 years on faculty, uh, teaching family ministry as well as apologetics. And as of this coming June, my wife and I will have been married for 25 years. So we will reach that quarter century mark in terms of our marriage. Before I came to Southern Seminary, I had been a pastor for 16, 17 years, an associate pastor in a couple of different churches. I now have the privilege of serving Sojourn Community Church Midtown as one of the pastors there as well. And uh, We have four children, ranging all the way from 10 to 22, all of them girls, and so there is a lot of excitement going on at any given time.
How did God bring you to faith in himself? So just talk about really briefly how God brought you to faith in himself. How did you become a believer in Jesus Christ? Yeah, the short version is I did not grow up in a churched home. Long before I existed, my dad was an itinerant Methodist teenage preacher in his neck of the woods in central Texas. And But by the time I had come around, that was no longer a part of his life. Somewhere in there, he had decided that, in his estimation, the church was was a business of some sort or was being run as a business. And he decided that if he was going to be involved in business, he was going to be involved in a business that made him much more money. And so he walked away from the church at that point, never to return except for weddings and funerals. And my mom, being a bit more old-fashioned, wasn't going to take me or or my brother and my sister to church by herself if dad wasn't there. So I grew up without all that. Fortunately, by God's grace, there were families surrounding me in our neighborhood who either just from knowing my dad or or seeing something in me or something lacking in me decided that that I needed Jesus. I needed saving. And so they would, you know, take me to church or various events. And somewhere around third grade, one of those events, to my best recollection, was some sort of revival, I guess. All I know is that it, it occurred for a week and happened in a football stadium. And so I don't know what else to call it. But by the end of that week, there was a, a gospel, I'm assuming, I, I really have very little memory of this, a gospel presentation and an invitation to walk to the front or to the, you know, to the 50-yard line and accept Jesus as your Savior was kind of the, the words used. And so there was a big crowd going, and I, I followed the crowd. I, I wish I could remember precisely kind of what my inner thoughts and feelings were, but... Uh, you know, I just only remember the facts. So followed the crowd. I was led by someone to pray the sinner's prayer, and I was I was given a new Christian packet with this kind of checklist of how to live the Christian life, and that's how I tried doing it for for quite a while. Uh, I had many ups and downs, including a very dark downward spiral of about two or three years in my early high school years. And so the quality of my walk with Jesus had everything to do with how well I was doing in that checklist. And somewhere towards the end of high school and in college, God put some people in my life that both exemplified and and kind of walked alongside me, uh, helping me to come to a, a, a better understanding of what it means to to follow Jesus and and to have a, a deep abiding love for him and uh, and, and in those relationships I, I learned a bit more about grace and forgiveness and um, and the value the importance of obedience 
Well, my story very, very different in many ways on that. From as far back as I can remember, my father was a pastor, and I, at some point around five years of age, I believe, was at a revival service, and at the toward the end of that, simply came to this recognition, I need Jesus, and prayed. That was the only prayer I prayed, was simply, I need Jesus. And a few months later, somewhere around the time I was six years old, I was baptized, and for a, a while, just being a believer, being a Christian was just part of being in my family, and it just was a natural thing in that. Our family ended up a few years later in some very, very fundamentalist churches that the creedal statement of those churches was pretty much, don't listen to rock and roll, men cut their hair short, women wear skirts. That was kind of their their whole, that was what I remember from those churches in that. And over time, by the time I was in, in my early teen years, I really just couldn't handle the, the pressure of all the rules and the, the constant sense of, of something always has to be condemned in that particular context. The problem was that all those rules in my mind were wrapped up with God. And so to reject those rules was to reject God. And so went some, through some really tough times in my early teenage years during that time until it was actually Christian rock. As critical as I am sometimes of Christian rock, it was Christian rock, the, the access to that, that helped me to see that there is a way to follow Jesus that's not based on a bunch of external rules. And that really began to draw me back. God used that and some other factors to really draw me back to himself into a new commitment to him and sort of a renewed faith in, in which I really believed in and loved God for God's sake and not simply I need to keep these rules. It was really, in some sense, a return back to that recognition at five years old, I need Jesus and the reality and the truth of that. So you and I met in 2014 when I was interviewing for a, a job, a position as your part-time assistant, which you hired me for because I believe you had no other applicants, or at least you didn't interview any other applicants to my knowledge. And so that put us in offices next to each other. And then eventually I became your full-time assistant. And then after that, moved on to other full-time positions still in your department, but not as your assistant. And, and that allowed me to keep the awesome office that was next to you until eventually you would kick me out in the year 2018, but no bitterness there. And having two offices next to each other, separated only by a door, that we would have many random questions or conversations, or there's just all types of randomness that uh, one of us would knock on the door and begin talking about whatever was, was on our mind. And one day I walked in, I can't remember the, the context, the circumstances, but uh, it was a conversation about music, which we had many of, but this particular conversation was about a certain song. And that song was All Along the Watchtower by Jimi Hendrix. 
Yeah, and that's we kind of ta- started talking about that and then the different versions of that song and then had this idea, wow, wouldn't it be really neat if there were a show that focused on or at least had a segment to do with rock and roll and apologetics and finding truth in rock and roll. And so now here we are. Things have transpired that have allowed us to work this into our lives of having these types of conversations about rock and roll and apologetics. And hopefully it's helpful to other people. We've had fun with it so far and continue to uh, hope to do that in the future. But why apologetics? The conversation that you and I had really started with this song and its tie to scripture and, and kind of the theology behind it. So here we are, Three Chords and the Truth, a rock and roll apologetics podcast. And so the question has to be, why apologetics? Why not some other topic? Why not simply say a theology of music or or whatnot? Well, a lot of it for me is, I will completely admit, I just enjoy apologetics. There's an enjoyment in that, partly driven by my own story of some struggles with my faith that I faced in college, that apologetics really became a means and a catalyst for bringing me back to faith, so to speak. For me, it's important in that. There's also the fact that I just love history, and this gives so many excuses just to talk about history. So there's the personal enjoyment, personal inclination, coupled with, on the other hand, the way that God has used apologetics in my life at particular points to bring me to himself and to draw me closer to himself. Faith and reason is a very interesting topic to me, and that's a big part of apologetics. The other one, which I know we'll speak of in a second, really has to do with the importance that I see apologetics playing in the faith formation or maybe the the sustaining of faith of our young people, the young people of the church, and speaking very selfishly, my own children. If my children come to faith and then one day leave the house, you know, as young adults to to go wherever, my two desires are one, that their their faith is theirs, right? That they own this. This this is not something they simply adopted because they were in my, you know, proximity of, of me. But I also want to equip them to understand the challenges that they'll face of that faith, the the questions that'll be asked, the hard topics and questions to to think through and I just want to I just want to make sure that when they leave the house they're not shocked by any of that they're not surprised by what's going to come at them in the world yeah, both of us have worked in student ministry fairly extensively at different times in our lives why do you see apologetics as being important for student ministry, because I really believe it is. That's one of the passions that I have for apologetics is to equip youth ministers and student ministers so that they can then equip their students for the sake of resilient faith. That's one of the things that is is really important to me. But what about for you? How have you seen it maybe practically, or how do you want it to happen, apologetics being used in student ministry? Yeah, that's an easy one, because I, in the last week, got a call from a parent of a gentleman who I used to minister to. And I left Young Life Staff in 2010, right? So that's been a little while. And 
this gentleman graduated one of the last few years that I was in ministry, and of course since then has now finished college and gone on to the professional world and, and all of those things. And I got a call from this mom who, here's my son, almost, you know, 10 years removed from high school, and he has, he's lost, he's left the faith. He doesn't hold any of this to be true anymore. All the things that he used to affirm and, and believe and, and whatnot, he kind of has rejected it since then. And in talking with her, it just became apparent to me, not that I hadn't thought this before, but that, you know, one, perhaps this gentleman's faith was never really truly his. It was just kind of his, part of his context. Or he, it was just kind of a, this superficial faith that over time has not been able to withstand the challenges, both the intellectual challenges that he's faced since then, being kind of an intellectual himself, and certainly hasn't been able to withstand just the, the life challenges that have come since then, the, the disappointments and the heartaches and that things haven't gone precisely as he hoped they would in life. So this happening within the last week is just serves as a reminder what would it have looked like to truly prepare this gentleman for what he was going to face in the 10 years after high school and a few years after college. And so that's why I'm passionate about this and desire to know more, understand more, and to help others do the same. I think that every student has got to be prepared to deal with three particular crises, three particular questions. Is it true? Does it work? And will I follow? In fact, I think every person to do with their Christian faith probably has to deal with those. But every student needs to be prepared to deal with those. And often I don't think we've prepared them for those three questions. Is it true? Does it work? Will I follow? Now, those don't always go in that order. I think of in in my own life, the is it true? I faced that at 17, 18 years of age in college when I was faced with challenges to what I had assumed about my faith that turned out many of the, the reasons I'd been given to believe were wrong, and and I had to reconstruct that. That's where apologetics really became helpful to me, that is it true question. But there's also the question of will I follow? I could have resolved that personally when I was 15, 14 or 15, when I came back to a resolute faith and following of Jesus. I, I That was the following, will I follow? And uh, sometimes I think for most of us, this does it work question comes later in our lives when we really face some sort of crisis or pain or brokenness, because I really faced that when I was about 29, 30 years of age, when we were really struggling, wanted to have children and had lost children and had tried to adopt children and that had fallen through. And I really had to wrestle with that, does it work? Will Christian faith really work? But those three crises, those three questions, I don't think that in most cases we are preparing our students to answer those questions of does it work, will I follow, is it true? We don't really do that. And one of the hard things is is that everyone's story is different, and so each person is going to experience these questions differently and their struggles with them and to different degrees. I don't have this conscious struggle of, is it true in my life? It was always, always for me, it's been, will I follow? That has been kind of the constant wrestling 
in my life and along with you, I would agree that does it work does tend to come a bit later or or perhaps maybe when a, a person kind of matures mentally and they begin to experience more difficult things in their life. So, you know, that could come, technically it could come in, in your 20s and whatnot, though I, I still don't think our, at least as men, I don't think our brains are fully formed till late 20s, early 30s. I think in that too, what you're pointing out, each person is different as well. Because for me, I never stop dealing with the is it true question. Every time I write a book about apologetics, I find myself going back to, not in a, in a negative way, but going back to, do I actually believe this is true? I don't know that there's ever a moment in my life that I'm not thinking about the is it true question. Now's the time in our episode, Timothy, where we go to the infinity gauntlet. Could you explain to our listeners exactly what it is that we're speaking of here? The Infinity Gauntlet is that gauntlet, that glove, which Thanos wore in the Infinity War. This is crucial. We have, through means that we cannot reveal to you, because if we told you, we would have to kill you, we have obtained Thanos's actual Infinity Gauntlet. Now, the way we know that it's the real one and not one that we bought for like $19.99 at Target is because it makes noises. It makes sounds. As you can tell, it makes the noises. Uh, it is the real one. You press the Mind Stone and out comes the sound. Now, what we do each week with the Infinity Gauntlet is we have placed questions inside it. This is a dangerous thing because if you put your hand in wrong and snap, half of all humanity on Earth dies. But we have put questions daringly. It, it, is, it is something that is we are taking great risk by putting questions in the Infinity Gauntlet. We pull one out each week, and these are some of the most pressing questions of our world today that we pull out of the Infinity Gauntlet, and we answer a question from the Infinity Gauntlet. Right. These are questions that tend to divide families, start wars, cause people to break fellowship with one another. And today's Infinity Gauntlet question is as follows. Which one would win and why? A Dementor or a Ringwraith? Oh, this is a really hard one. That's a tough one. Now, this one is so hard. My 16-year-old daughter, I ran this by her, and we had this discussion. And she disagreed with me. And I don't want to admit this, but she's probably not going to listen to this program because she doesn't like rock and roll. Mm. So I'll just go ahead and say. You have not raised her up in the way which she I know, should go. I know. I've not trained up my child in the way she should go, and she has already departed from it. She listens to like classical music and stuff like that and show tunes and Christian pop. And so... But she's a great kid. So my argument was at first that a Dementor would win because the way a Dementor works is to remove the soul, to suck the soul out of something. But then she dropped something on me. She being a great Lord of the Rings fan, she says, a Ringwraith has no soul left to take. Therefore, it would not be affected by the Dementor. And since it wouldn't be affected by the Dementor, the Ringwraith would win. And she had me at that point. I, I'm, I tried to come up with a comeback, but I'm struggling with this. I am right there with you. Knee-jerk reaction was, yeah, was the Dementor. I think I tied it to the Ringwraith having this certain power connected to the ring and that really not being a thing for Dementors. But 
if a battle ensued for whatever reason, yeah, I would have to agree that in the end the ring wraith probably prevails for that for that very reason. Maybe I'd have to think of it more, but but uh, on the face of it, I think she she did get us. So if Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, if those universes ever intersect and battling for the soul of the universe, we have the ring wraiths and we have the dementors. Our estimation is that the ring wraiths are all going to win. Rock and roll, it's one of the greatest human inventions ever, and it's one of the supreme expressions of God's common grace. The way we see it, the golden age of this invention began with Bob Dylan and ended with Pearl Jam. And that's why, each week in the second half of the program, Garrick and I review one of our favorite songs and go digging for truth in classic rock. Well, the theological truth that we're looking at today in this segment of the program is common grace, common grace. Now, what on earth is common grace? Yeah, I don't want to go too super nerdy here, but essentially, in the Reformation, when the Reformers began to disagree with the practices and the functional beliefs of what we now call the Roman Catholic Church— they came to see that the image of God, right, the Imago Dei in which we were created, Genesis tells us, that it belonged to the being of humanity. It constituted humans. Whatever it means to be human, to have a human nature, the Reformers believed that the image of God was a part of that. But following the advent of sin in Genesis 3, we recognize that, and Scripture tells us, that nothing good remains in fallen humans, right? All of our thoughts, words, and deeds are polluted by sin. Essentially, long story short, our friend, a man named John Calvin, basically he said, okay, on, on the one hand, he, he considered man's sin to be so serious, so profound that it makes human nature incapable of good in any sphere of life, and that if sin had been kind of left to itself, if if no one had intervened, if things had just continued on without God intervening, then everything would have been corrupted, destroyed, would have become undone, that creation would have essentially unraveled. But he also knew that he couldn't deny the true, the good, the the beautiful that we see in humanity outside of Christ, in all of humanity, even those who we would call unbelievers, the unregenerate, those who have not been made alive in Christ by the Holy Spirit. So, Calvin, appealing to Scripture, he comes to distinguish between what he called a a general or common and special grace, which essentially was to distinguish between the working of the Holy Spirit in all of creation and the working of the Holy Spirit in saving people and making them alive, spiritually speaking, and bringing them to become more like 
Christ. And really, in some ways, common grace is tied with, or at least it's connected to, also this idea of a creation mandate. It's not the same thing by any means, but they're both operative in certain areas of life. And so the, the idea of a creation mandate is that when God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, it was not simply telling them to subdue the earth in a way of bringing it under their control. It was rather also to cultivate the world. It was to bring beauty, bring organization out of the chaos of the world. It seems to be that the vision at that point was that the Garden of Eden would expand around the world, we might say, so that the glory of God fills the earth like the water fills the sea. And what they would be doing is is bringing the whole earth into this sort of creational, this is beauty. This was the vision at the beginning. Well, what we have to recognize in this is that that wasn't completely obliterated in the fall, that calling on humanity to bring organization and beauty out of chaos, and that the unbeliever and the believer are both capable of doing that. Now, the unbeliever may do it for all the wrong reasons, and the may, the unbeliever may do it with completely wrong motivations, but the unbeliever is still able to bring order from chaos and beauty from from chaos. Yeah, I think this reality is obvious when we realize we were created, man was created to cultivate God's kingdom on earth, right? And then we revolt in Genesis 3. And then what we see after that is, hey, we can still build kingdoms. We still have that ability to do what we were created to do. But now the problem is, is that we build our own kingdoms, right? We build kingdoms for ourselves to lift us up, to worship us, to place us at the center. But we still possess the ability that was a part of our original intention. It's just that now what we see played out through human history is a battling of of two kingdoms, essentially. The one of God's kingdom, which we were intended to be builders of, and, and now the kingdom of man, which we have become pretty proficient at trying to build our, on our own. And I think that's one of the things that we see is that we as Christians, hopefully, can glimpse the good that is there in the art that is made by the world, while simultaneously recognizing the ways that it is also distorted, the ways that it is an expression sometimes of trying to rise up and build our own kingdom, we might say, we should hone our senses to be able to see the beauty but also recognize the rebellion. And I think that's part of our cultural capacity that we need to develop as believers in Jesus Christ. And so the question is, is it true that God gave rock and roll to you? So let's take a look at the song, God Gave Rock and Roll to You. So it was Written and recorded in 1971, but it wasn't actually released until 1973, which is the year that I was born. It's by a band called Argent, and the kind of the leader of that band was Rod Argent was his name. Wouldn't it be great to have a name, a last name that cool, Argent? But he was actually also in the band The Zombies at one point as well, which is a little bit more popular, but only slightly than the band Argent. This particular song was written by their guitar player in the band Argent, whose name was Russ Ballard. Now, the lyrics that they actually wrote originally are not the same ones that we hear in Kiss's version, which we'll talk about in just a moment. 
the way their song originally started out, 1971, 1973, is love your friend, love your neighbor, love your life, and love your labor. No, it's never too late to change your mind. Don't step on snails. Don't climb in trees. Love Cliff Richard, who is an obscure but very popular, to us today obscure, but was very popular at that time, British singer at that point. But please don't tease. It's never too late to change your mind. If you want to be a singer or play guitar, man, you got to sweat or you won't get far because it's never too late to work nine to five. And if you're young, then you'll never grow old. Music can make your dreams unfold. How good it feels to be alive. God gave rock and roll to you, gave rock and roll to you, put it in the soul of everyone. God gave rock and roll to you, gave rock and roll to you, saved rock and roll for everyone. Now, what I first notice when I read this, and uh, we'll talk about this in our next episode a little bit, the hippie kind of inclination of this longing for peace and kindness in this that you see in the 1960s, 1970s, these kind of themes of desiring this authentic spiritual longing, this desire for love and peace and kindness that starts showing up in a new way in much of the music. But this, as we've we recognized, this is really different from the Kiss version of this song. Right. Everyone agrees that the KISS version is superior in every way. In fact, the first time you and I ever spoke of this song, I can't remember why, that's the first time you mentioned the Argent version, which I had no idea about. Not only did I not have an idea that KISS was was not the original creator of this song, but I had never even heard of Argent. So the KISS version comes from the Revenge album, right, in 1992, which was after the makeup era, as we spoke about earlier. It's the the same album that had Unholy on it, which is kind of funny and ironic, and the last album which the drummer Eric Carr appeared. But that was not where I was introduced to it, and I'm sure this will come out somewhere down the line in uh, this podcast, but the first time I ever heard this song was when I was a young boy watching the horrendously terrible movie, which I still love, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. There may not be any common grace in that movie whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, it may be all depravity and no common grace at all. Until George Carlin introduces that song to us. Yes. And so uh, God gave rock and roll to you this amazing version, which on the, the movie, by the way, does not start in the same way Kiss starts. It, it's actually a guitar solo by Steve Vai that is amazing guitar solo. What I find really, really fascinating in this particular uh, version of, of the song by Kiss is that 
that, that original version by Argent, there really is a rejoicing in common grace. As silly as the lyrics may be, it is talking about to love your friend, love your neighbor, how good it feels to be alive, talking about enjoying creation, all those things like that. Once you get to the Kiss version, all that's gone. There's no hint of that. In fact, in Kiss's version, what we do see is this trajectory of how even that which is full of common grace can be distorted and perverted. Now, as we've said, the music of the Kiss version, okay, it's amazing at that point. And it is is well done, fits the song perfectly. But there's also in the Kiss version almost this tendency to see redemption in the music itself. So in the Kiss version, you've got put your faith in a loud guitar. We've been, and then there's this preaching section at the end of it, almost in the Kiss version, where it's, we have been given a gift. We have been given a road and that road's name is rock and roll. That's what we have in the Kiss version of almost a search for redemption in the music itself. And one of the long standing arguments, one of the emphases of those who hold to the concept of common grace is that common grace does not exist, one, it certainly does not exist for the purpose of redemption. Common grace does not save, whereas in, in, the, in these KISS lyrics, they have turned something that we consider a gift, a creation gift of God, a common grace, and they have turned it into a special grace of God that saves and, and rescues and, and even transforms. But thinkers, theologians throughout history have been very careful to, one, point out this is not a special grace, this is not a grace that saves, and many have made sure to kind of go further and say, in fact, it's not even for the purpose of preparing. Uh, it doesn't necessarily prepare people for special grace, for salvation. The one road does not automatically and always lead to the second. You see that so strongly in Calvin in the Institutes. So Calvin talks about the sense of divinity or the awareness of divinity. And here's what I find fascinating what Calvin does. And we see it played out here on the stage of rock and roll. Calvin says that prior to regeneration, that sense or awareness of divinity actually leads to deeper idolatry instead of leading somebody closer to grace. In other words, as you pointed out, it's not that we get common grace and that moves us a little closer to God and then we get special grace. That is not it at all. It's that God gives common grace and the unregenerate person, that is to say the person who's not been made alive by the Holy Spirit and trusted in Christ, that person is actually going to use common grace for idolatrous reasons. It's going to become an idolatry for them, these gifts of common grace, rather than something that moves them closer to God at that point. And we see that pretty clearly in this. Music makes a wonderful gift, but it makes a terrible God. And in some sense, what we see in this is this appeal to music as, as a God rather than as a gift. And that's a, that's a struggle for all of us, for all the good things in life, whether it's family, whether it's learning, whether it's education, whether it's art, whether it's music. 
They are wonderful gifts, but they are terrible gods. And what we see in this is a trajectory. You've got Arjun's version that it has sort of a, it asks, at least raises some of the right questions, even if it doesn't get to the right answers. And I don't know, and I tried to find what their kind of faith vision or state was, and I, I just don't know on that. But there's this clear sense of that that we have, are living in a world that is full of gifts and to receive those gifts. That's what you see in the Argent version. What you see in the KISS version is we are going to worship the gifts. We are going to seek our salvation, we might say, in the gifts, which turns gifts into gods. And that's exactly what you see in that trajectory in, in these versions of the song. God gave rock and roll to you. Gave rock and roll to me. Save rock and roll for everyone. Usually at this point in the podcast is where we will provide some recommendations for you, the listener. These might be books for you to check out, further reading, or resources that exist out there that we think are particularly helpful or relevant to the topic covered in a particular episode. Today's recommendation is this podcast. That's right. Three Chords in the Truth. We want you to subscribe to this podcast. And share with friends. And share with your neighbors, your friends. Uh, Grandmother. It, grandmothers. Yeah, I mean, there are so many grandmothers who listen to rock and roll and want to hear about the theology of rock and roll. Each time we have this episode, a couple of times a month, there will be a new episode drop two different times a month, and we'll have two different segments each time. And those segments are um, named, amazingly enough, Three Chords is the first segment, and the second segment is... The, the truth. truth. So it's very coincidental. It also happens to be the name of the podcast. Now, in that first half, that three chords half of the program, what we'll talk about is one of the following three topics each week, racial reconciliation, the reliability of scripture, or the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those are the three topics. We'll be touching on those, not all of them every week, and not always just those three topics, but those will tend to be the types of things we talk about in the first half of the program. That was really good alliteration, Timothy. That was. I like the letter R. This program brought to you by the letter R. And those of you who watched Sesame Street in the 70s and early 80s, you got that. And everybody else wondered, why did he say that? What about the truth, Timothy? So the truth is the part where we kind of, I think our personalities come out a lot more because we're just doing something that we find fun, which is theology and rock and roll. Because if there's two things that rate for both of us and about the top five things we think are cool, it's theology and and rock and roll. Yeah, these are essentially conversations that we would be having in our offices together, maybe over a cup of coffee or something like that. And so we just figured, well, why not record those conversations? Maybe someone else would love to listen in on them. Put it in the Thank you for joining us today. 
If you want to learn more about the two of us, take a look at threechordsapologetics.com. That's chords with an H, the kind you play on the guitar. While you're at threechordsapologetics.com, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you're interested in learning more about defending the truth of God's Word, take a look at our book, How We Got the Bible. My name is Timothy Paul Jones, my co-host is Garrick Bailey, and we are already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. If you want to dig deeper into apologetics, one great place to start is the book Reasons for Our Hope by Wayne House and Dennis Jowers. The book is Reasons for Our Hope, and you can go to bhacademic.com today to download a free sample chapter.